Welcome back to the Lightfoot Podcast. This week, Alexander and I unfurl through a fascinating forest of ideas. We track the evolution of Rebel Wisdom's development and outline its spiral-like journey from embodiment and liminality to its focus on the impact of Jordan Peterson, its exploration of the intellectual dark and deep web before a return to its roots. We also dance with the knotty but humming question of how to cultivate meaningful culture and community within the context of the digital sense-making scene, and explore the importance of remembering that we're all in this together, that we're practicing for each other. Ali also gives us an update on how he's feeling about the state of the psychedelic renaissance after his recent debate with the co-founder of Compass Pathways, which is one of the best-funded and more game-A-like companies racing towards the mushroomy pot of gold at the end of the research rainbow. I feel there is a lot to savor in this exchange. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, I bring you Alexander Biner. Alexander, welcome to the Lightfoot Podcast. It is a pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, pleasure to be here with you too, Joe. Yeah, so I've got lots of things that I want to chat with you about. But before we go into the things that you're more well known for, including rebel wisdom and psychedelic capitalism i want to touch on i did a bit of research into your background you've got some interesting things that you've been up to um you published a novel in 2009 called beyond the basin and um i had a bit of a read of the beginning of it online and (laughs) i thought it was really provocative and beautiful writing so i think that's kind of interesting to set the stage that you have this literary background i mean it shows in your writing with your articles obviously you're highly skilled in the craft um i also learned that you hosted a podcast interviewing visionary artists is that right yeah man this is uh it's really cool to talk about this stuff from before and thank you firstly that's really nice kind words Mm -hmm. um yes yeah that was like so i uh wrote the novel and then uh kind of brought it out self-published it when i was i think it was 24 um and that was really what i wanted to do with my life like at that time and through my entire 20s actually all i was really cared well it's not all uh when i say all i cared about like it it was a burning obsession (laughs) to to get Mm. novels published and so yeah beyond the basin was about um uh, kind of a a journalist who has dream visions of um a little girl in an undiscovered tribe in the amazon so it was a kind of psychedelic adventure story in a sense um Mm. with two kind of interweaving narratives Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, so visionary artist podcast was around the same time, and that was yeah, basically interviewing visionary artists. So if anyone doesn't know what visionary art is, it's a um, it's basically art inspired by altered states, and it's but it's got its own like very specific kind of um, style to it. So like maybe the most famous visionary artist is Alex Gray, and there's Martina Hoffman and Robert Venosa, and so. You know, I was kind of on this quest to figure out, like, what is it um, as a genre? Like, what is visionary art and what isn't visionary mm. art? Mm. Um, and that was quite, uh, that was like a cool kind of two-year journey. And then eventually I just interviewed all of them. <laughs> it's not a huge wow. scene. I just, like, interviewed pretty, not all of them. And I'm sure, and, and there have since been, you know, great visionary artists have come up. And there were, of course, people I didn't manage to interview. Mm. But I really felt like... Like the format I had was I'd interview a, a bigger name and then someone who'd never, like who no one had ever heard of. And it was a really fun format because it just meant like, and like not one wasn't better than the other. Like it was always interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually two years in, I was like, yeah, I think like, I think I've kind of at least felt personally satisfied. Like I think I've kind of, 
I don't think I ever kind of like defined what is and isn't visionary art. I mean, I kind of did, but that's just my definition. And what I noticed is artists don't really like genre definition. <laughs> like they don't it's like an, the, It's an interesting yeah. one, isn't it? So I'm, I'm really into visionary art and particularly it's emergence because it's one of the kind of new styles that's emerged in our lifetime, as it were, and really is kind of the cutting edge of, of what well, was uh, 10 years ago. It's probably evolved. And now it's kind of passe, isn't it? People, people, that term quickly got constraining for people is what I found. Um, I bought, obviously, you know, Android Jones. Did you ever interview Android Jones? Uh, I did actually. Yeah. 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 He's cool. He came to Chiang Mai actually where we live and gave a talk. Um, my only art purchasing experience, my parents have bought quite a bit of art, but was at the Eclipse Festival in 2012. I was in another dimension at the time, walking through the gallery, and I made a purchase. And um, I've still got that bit of art, but I haven't hung it up yet, actually. It's still sitting in my cupboard at home. But I, um, I actually date a visionary artist. I can show you here some of the art. This is... Uh, this is oh, partner cool, stuff. man. That's amazing. What, what did you find when you were talking to them? What was the, what was the, like, what was the common, the takeaway after that two years experience of, of podcasting or some of the oh. insights? Now I have to cast my mind right back yeah, to a different life. But yeah, it's fun. I just also want to check. I'm not, uh, when I talk, I'm not getting a um, sound thing coming up on mine, but you can obviously hear me. So I just want to check. It's, it's like catching my sound. Yeah, yeah, it is gotcha. great, great, great. Amazing. So yeah, so yeah, what did I learn uh, talking to the visionary artists? Um, well, the first thing was that, yeah, well, one thing that was interesting that, that immediately comes up is that it's, you know, um, I think it was Hemingway had this um, phrase, uh, write drunk, edit sober. Mm-hmm. But it, in, in a way with visionary artists, the other way around, because no one really that I spoke to or have since makes art while in an altered state, you know. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's ever tried to do that, like I've tried to write, and all, it's just really difficult. <laughs> it's not, it's not like how I imagined it would be. It's just like uh-huh. chaotic, awful experience of like, oh, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so, so what what was interesting was like the fact that like people people go into altered spaces, not just with psychedelics, but it could be through breathworks. So, you know, I interviewed. Uh, Bruce Rimmel, who, whose images come through migraine headaches, you know, like mm. really interesting kind of broad spectrum of people. But people would have the vision. And then the discipline was in, in the editing. Um, not, well, I guess it is a bit like edit sober. It's like, but it's more like create sober, like kind of mm. like trying to tap into that space and then bring it out. And I think that's like, that dynamic is for me really amazing because there's... Um, it's, it's really difficult to ever capture your own imagination and the own like the, the, the full feeling of sort of revelation in art. You always lose something in the translation. And that was a theme mm. that came across a lot as well. It's something I've noticed in my own, um, like I noticed in writing. And it's just this kind of like eternal sense of, um, oh, that's, that's almost there, but it's not quite, it's not quite it. Um, mm. There is a, oh, there's a modernist poem. Uh, I think it's the, the, J. Alfred Prufrock, um, uh, name escapes me, very famous poet who wrote that. Um, but they, there's a line of like, oh, no, that's not it. That's not it at all. And that, that line always came up for me because I was like, oh, God, you have this incredible vision of something that you want to create. And it's probably the same with all the whole creative process. And then once it goes through, it's just the sum 
some essence of the imagination that less lost in translation. So there, there was that kind of poignancy of it that really came through. Um, and mm. there was just, and, and also I was just continuously fascinated because I'm not a visual artist and I really have very, I think my visual art's at the level of like an eight-year-old, genuinely. I actually drew a picture <laughs> the other day. I showed it to my wife and she was like, Me too. my God, <laughs> uh, it's just awful. Um, so I'm just like continuously fascinated by just the, the fact that people can do that, they can make art like that. Um, it's like and, magic and, yeah. for us non-visual yeah. people, isn't it, right? It's, <laughs> totally. it's like watching magic unfold. I don't get it at all. So, yeah. so that, was just a, that was just continuously um, enjoyable, really, to, to kind of, mm. um, yeah. And in fact, and then also wasn't just visionary artists, uh, sorry, it wasn't just visual artists, it was also like, a, do you know East Forest? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, so I actually, I think, I've been, I, I love East Forest. I'm a huge fan. I, I listen to East Forest all the time. And I've been yeah. tracking uh, his work since his first album. I think I was one of the first people to interview him ever because I was on an internet forum and he dropped his first album, Education of the Individual Soul, wow. on that forum and probably in other places. But it was just so good. And he'd spent a year making it from day to day. Like he started on like the, whatever it was, like the 3rd of June one year and ended, and then he released it on the 3rd of June the next year. And it was just so good and he's just continued to be really good and i just watched him especially in the kind of psychedelic and alternative scenes just kind of grow and grow and grow um and so that's been that was really cool as well just like realizing the visionary art isn't just visual art it's also comes through music and it comes through sculpture and it comes through writing and it comes through lots of different media mm. yeah yeah it's often pigeonholed into the visual space that's funny that correlation isn't it and actually mm. i'm taking some taking some solace from what you're saying about you know, that's that's not it with the art because I, I had what felt like a vision of this idea of like community and world change a few years ago. And it all made sense. And, you know, four years later, a book, this many podcasts, whatever, I feel like I haven't even gotten close to conveying the essence of it. And I recognize as you say that, that's actually quite a deep frustration that I'm carrying around. And to hear that that's a common, a common thing just makes me chill out and be like, yeah, that's part of it you know, and it might take some time and all of us that are trying to manifest and create an art, things into the world are having that experience. So that's, that's kind of healing for me, actually. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel similarly with, with most things uh, creatively. Um, and it's that I, I, in, in some ways, I guess that that frustration can sort of drive us as well um, in a healthy way. There's yeah. this kind of um, a sense of not being uh, fully satisfied, but that there's also a kind of a creative fire in that too. There's a kind of a burning. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Because what would happen if we did convey it would probably just you know that that's a good <laughs> point as well, isn't it? Maybe that's a curse. Maybe we're we're blessed by always having the muse that like, like inch away from us, you know. That's true. You just have to make a cup of tea and sit down in a room and do nothing. Really. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't time. The meta crisis is upon us. Um, <laughs> So a little tiny bit more of this is your life. Um, there's like you, you've also had a background in teaching meditation um, and you once worked in the advertising industry. And I'm wondering, did you have like a classic, like, oh my God, what am I doing in the destroying the world industry? Or was it more of a kind of like you were just doing it to make cash and you were already doing cool stuff on the side? What was the transition out of that? Yeah, good question. My love, that taps into like one of the biggest struggles in my life at, at that era as well. Like, so mm. I, it's quite, 
So there's a whole thing of people working in industries like advertising and other kind of soulless things where they have that realization and they're like, oh, I'm going to become a yoga teacher. I'm going to kind of become more holistic. But mine was completely the opposite because I was already in the psychedelic world. I'd already written like my novel. I was already into meditation. I already started. Um, I, it was like at the same time that I got my first job in London that I started doing my meditation teacher training. So for me, I, my whole thing was I don't want to get caught in the regular job thing because I think it'll drive me mad and I'm not that kind of person. Uh, and then the reality of it was like, oh, it's really hard to make money out of writing. Um, it was a financial crash. So it was like 2008, which, you know, us being like kind of the same age, that was like a big thing for us coming out of university. It was like, oh, mm -hmm. the whole, not only is the system collapsing, but the whole system is deeply corrupt and we're going to prop it up. So that was the kind of the background. So there's a lot of like kind of like pain and frustration that I felt with that. And I needed a job. And because like both of my parents um, also kind of went bankrupt when I was basically like uh, effectively, you know, when I was like 18, 19. Mm. Um, and so while I had like a, a very, I was very lucky to have had a really great education and a really, you know, like good childhood. And, and we weren't like super wealthy, but we were comfortable. I, mm. I then kind of was in a, situation where I felt a very intense pressure to like, oh, I really need to earn as much money as possible because I've got fuck all and, and I have to pay off some student loans and I have like, I have no safety net. There's, you know, there's no asset that I can fall back on. So I was like, I really need some money. And so I got a job in a brand, no, in a actually new business agency. So that companies like marketing companies hire this company to be their salespeople basically. And you'd like pretend to work at that company. Um, and I was actually really good at sales and I did enjoy it too. There's like, I've got a kind of like, uh, let's say kind of game A um, streak in me, which I, mm. I feel fairly comfortable with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, great. Awesome. And, and the whole thing was like, the, the way I could justify doing it um, was like, I'm earning money so I can do my other stuff, which is exactly what I did. And like, there was a very strange period where like my wife and I had a meditation school of meditation and we had like a, a live work unit um in in the city in London uh, which was like so it was like a huge like studio and we like we had a, like a spiral staircase we lived upstairs and so we were running meditation classes but we were also like working freelance like I was working freelance in a in a uh, a marketing agency and so I'd like work in the marketing agency and then come home come back to home slash the studio have like half an hour and then people would arrive for an evening class and like that was a, a strange life it was cool though <laughs> you know it was a, very much like a double life in a way both worlds yeah both worlds yeah and so in in that tension was always uncomfortable for me because i always wanted to just get out um and then the, then it eventually became sort of unbearable um and i realized i was like okay i'm like kind of approaching 30 and i was thinking like i what if I did get trapped in this forever? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just don't, or oh, I just couldn't, I just can't be doing that. So luckily that isn't how things panned out, but it was difficult. Yeah. So I had the opposite, basically long story short, I had the opposite thing where I knew I didn't want to be doing it from the very first day, yeah. but I had to kind of figure out a way to manage the cognitive dissonance while I was doing it. It was very formative as well. I had like a lot of kind of, uh, soul, soul wrenching, identity pain at that at, mm. during those those years at times yeah 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 it seems to be common around that age i mean i'm not really big into astrology but saturn returns around the end of the 20s i mean just seem to be a thing that stage of life if you want to frame it that way is just can be crunchy um Definitely. i 
then want to skip across. So, yeah, then we come to Rebel Wisdom, this really influential in my life uh, source of information and sense-making. Um, most of the listeners will be familiar and, and probably very into Rebel Wisdom, so we don't need to spend too much time explaining what it is. But what I want to jump into is is the journey of it so far, um, which connects nicely to your own journey. There's a fractal there, and I'm sure your time in industry has really set you up because you can take so many perspectives. You and David really, you're kind of doing that. You're looking at all the angles and the fact that you've hustled in business has probably set you up. You know, it's all set you up for what you're doing now, I'm sure. And so I've, I want to, I really loved your article, uh, a story to bind us about the intellectual deep web, which is, you know, a couple of years old now. So the story has evolved a lot since then, but I really loved how you spoke about the evolution of Rebel Wisdom from starting out uh, with a strong emphasis on the ideas of Jordan Peterson, uh, moving into the intellectual dark web, and then into what you framed as the intellectual deep web. And it seems to me since then, there's been kind of another evolution to almost a nameless philosophy that's geared more towards embodiment and liminality. And I wonder if you could speak to that journey both in yourself and rebel wisdom over the last uh, three or four years. Yeah. Um, so so what's, what's interesting is I actually the journey of the kind of embodiment and the liminal knowing and kind of, uh, you know, feeling into the, the collective field. That's actually where we started, funnily yeah. enough. Like so, we you know, we started um, like with our uh, men's retreats uh, before before films and before um, mm. the, the channel. And so, and that was very much, um, or is, I mean, we haven't been doing it during COVID, very much a, a space of coming into an embodied sense of truth and embodied presence. Um, you know, we, David and I are both trained as, as counselors um, and we're, we're massively helped by Rafi and Morgan, who's um, like a close friend of ours and, and really brilliant facilitator. Um, so we, we kind of, the, the, the whole essence and like the, the whole heart of the idea that you have to use the intellect in, in an embodied way and manifest it in yourself and feel it as a felt presence. And, and even the things we talk about more uh, regularly on the channel, like, yeah, like collective intelligence or uh, emergence, that's all stuff that we've both experienced in, in group work or, you know, through psychedelic experience, uh, but also especially like in our men's weekend, like by the end of the men's weekend, like we said to each other one time, we were like, this is, this is the collective intelligence field. Like this is the sense of being able to feel the entire, because of the level of trust and connection um, in the room. And so that, that's always been at the, kind of the heart of what we do. But so in terms of the journey, yeah. So the beginning journey was certainly the kind of the Jordan Peterson phenomena. And, and then us trying to sort of unpick, well, what is what is what role is he playing in the culture and what role is is the culture like why is there what is that hole in the culture and like mm -hmm. like david and i had been the only two friends in our kind of groups who had been on a similar wavelength like before uh, after brexit and and trump where we were like something because you know a lot of our friends uh because you know i think we're both consider ourselves progressive but in a in a different way than the Americans refer to progressive or, you know, the, the kind of typical political way. Um, and it was like, it was a trick, it was a tricky one because there was this, this sort of, um, 
kind of, oh, those racist idiots in the countryside attitude in a lot of our circles. We were like, but surely there's something, like we could both feel like, as many people could, like there's some kind of profound shift happening in the cultural, deep, like kind of ecosystem beneath us. And instead of reacting against it, like we should try and make sense of it. And I think, and Ken Wilber's um, Trump in a Post-Truth World was incredibly helpful. Um, I was already really into Integral. Um, Mm-hmm. And it was just such a breath of fresh air to be like, ah, okay, yes, you can look at it through levels of development and you can look at it through the the, the level of, of green, postmodern, progressive kind of going awry and becoming effectively like the, le- this is something I, I think has been the, one of the most fascinating things that the leading edge of culture, i.e. the, that the people who are driving culture forward through the media, through films and TV, um, were the counterculture and are now the mainstream and then Mm. we've seen this flip towards the flip rightwards but also towards a kind of more i guess what jordan hall would call kind of like red church this sort of like decentralized uh decentralized um collective intelligence which is a bit rough around the edges in a kind of adolescent phase it's it's memes spreading online it's people having kind of radically different views and the old broadcast model of the old institutions kind of crumbling so we're in this kind of wild west mode um and that that seemed very that is a very exciting thing and it seemed very much like like this is the thing to inquire into like and there's also like why is the a deep sense of meaning and story and and jungian ideas and myths kind of coming into the culture why are those things important Mm. and so the meaning crisis which which john verveke and others have really kind of highlighted and then the meta crisis as well and so all of those things were going on and so our journey was through there was the kind of Peterson stuff right at the beginning and then into kind of broader thinkers. And then there was the, so the intellectual deep web that, that came about because of the, because oh, the intellectual dark web was the next kind of phase. And, and, you know, I had a, I had a real sense of like, yeah, but they're as, as smart as they are, you're never going to, you're never going to heal the culture wars by being cleverer than the other person. Because it, what, what, what we're talking about is a, is a crisis in, in meaning and trust as well. Um, and so it needs to be at a deeper level and it needs to be at the, the embodied mythic spiritual level. And then, so, and we'd been talking to people like that. Um, and I thought, okay, yeah, that's, that's what I want to call them is the intellectual deep web. Um, because it's the, it, 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 and it has even the sense of like kind of like mycelium. It's like the, this kind of the under, the, the, the kind of meaning making and the, and the kind of deeper analysis or deeper feeling under the surface of the political level. Um, and so, yeah, and then that was, that was about a couple of years ago. And then there's, I think another phase we went through is the kind of what I call like the systems thinkers, you know, like, mm-hmm. like Daniel Schmachtenberger or Nora Bateson, um, mm-hmm. uh, Jordan Hall, uh, although he was, you know, he'd been already in the original, like glitched in the matrix, mm-hmm. but so lots of people who, who have that understanding, which, which is, to be honest, is really not my strong suit or, or David's, I think, is that kind of like understanding how systems work. You know, it's become something we've learned more, but it's just been fascinating to, to talk to people like that. And then also the, the kind of um, the embodiment space and, and, okay, well, what does it actually look like to go beyond polarization? Well, you can't just do it on the intellectual level. You have to do it on the deep sense. And that takes us right back to the, the men's weekends um, where kind of, uh, started so yeah in, in a sense it's it's uh, 
spirals. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking it's, it's the spiral. It's, it yeah. seems to show up everywhere. And it's kind of beautiful that we arrive at that point. And that, I think what's so lovely about having Rebel Wisdom is like, we can watch the journey together because there's so many of us going on that process together and you become like a amplifier of a lot of people's inner journey. And it's really, it's quite a sacred thing actually, because you, you, you know, you playing out these parts of ourselves that we might not often get to talk to a lot of people around us and seeing how they evolve and uh, watching them come through. You become a larger than life character, you and David in a way, because you represent a lot of people's hopes and dreams and perspectives and, you probably also get a lot of shit projected on you from all sorts of different angles. And I can even own that myself. I was think reflecting on this, the journey I've been on with Rebel Wisdom of when I first saw it, I was like, what are these guys up to? You know, they're kind of cashing in on Jordan Peterson's like uh, arrival. You know, I was a little bit, I was a little bit suspect and I don't know why, because I agree with everything that you've been saying along the way. And as I've gotten to know you as thinkers, I just really respected where you're coming from. I have, I have love and adoration for you, I'd say. So yeah, I've seen that in myself. So I can imagine that must be quite a hell of a journey to be in the center of so many people because you're almost creating a new center is how I'd look at it. There was like a bifurcation of the progressive left after Trump and Brexit. And we're still making sense of, of what that looks like. The, the progressive has always been so good at inclusion that we're, we're not really used to being at each other's throats. So you guys had to kind of claim this ground of like, well, you know, we're looking at reason. Yeah, we've got one foot in spirit, but we're also looking at rationality. We're considering economics and we're not going to just blow in the wind, you know? And so there's this... Yeah, I think maybe you can uh, embody that uh, masculine energy, a bit of the Jordan Peterson thing a little bit, actually. And maybe that's what I was reacting against a little bit, my own unintegrated masculine father element, you know, without getting too deep into that. That's kind of, I've watched you guys, from my perspective, evolve like we all have and uh, integrate the thoughts. And it's, it's quite a powerful thing. Well, what's it been like to be in the center of it all? Yeah, well, thank you. Firstly, I'm glad it's. I'm glad like what we're doing is, is had that much of an impact. And like, um, what has it been like? Yeah, I mean, I find that most of my energy and attention is focused like on the work, and it's. I do think about this sometimes. I'm like, it's it because as well like so much of our audience is online. It doesn't feel like quite as real, if that makes sense. Like when we had the when we had the Rebel Wisdom Festival for example, and we had like, I think the peak of how many people we had in the, in the Zoom room at the same time was like around a thousand. And we were like, this is, fucking, like, this is definitely the biggest audience, live audience, like either of us have ever been in front of. But it, doesn't, it just feels like the 30 people you can see on the first Zoom screen. <laughs> it's, just yeah, like, right. <laughs> it's the same with the YouTube video. You're like, oh yeah, that's got like a certain amount of views. But it, it is very difficult to kind of conceptualized in terms of like because you don't I much prefer having like the back and forth because like what we're doing is impossible to do without the back and forth of people who are interested in it because we just get like continuous like back and forth of ideas and reflection and like this didn't land or well, why or oh, maybe we didn't think about this enough and like so mm. like it doesn't it doesn't happen in a vacuum it's it is a, actually a, a co-creative process um yeah, the and then it's about yeah and and the, in terms of the like the projection thing as well. I mean, I remember something Rafia told us like early on in like uh, when we were doing kind of training and doing the men's weekends, he was like, 
you know, one really good way to deal with projection is just to remember like that the, the people don't really know you. You know, it's a, they know a version of you. And, and in fact, that you could even ask the question, do any of us really know each other? To what degree? Mm. How much is projection? How much, is, especially, you know, in relationship, I think part, part of, like when you first get together with someone, it's like lots of projection. Um, I think actually Rafi again or, uh, said, it's a bit like, I'll be who you want me to be if you be who I want you to be. And then <laughs> <Yes>. eventually, <laughs> eventually you get to the real nub event. You're like, oh no, here's who you are. Here's who I am with all of it there together and then you love that and that's i think true love where it's like yeah it's you love the whole incredibly complex person with all their good and evil inside them so that's helpful to just think like yeah you know we're playing a kind of curation role i think what we're good at is curating and storytelling um but you can't really curate without feeling into the zeitgeist and feeling like where people are at what people are interested in like um who people think is an important thinker and like we're doing that work of course uh constantly but there it is a kind of a, this co-creative process um which increasingly is, is what we're trying to do in our like digital campfire by having um now most of our kind of what used to be interviews are um uh, kind of an interview followed by q a with breakouts etc so trying to bring the bring the two worlds together um but yeah basically it's, it's been a tricky wild ride um and it's it's also but genuinely like so much of my focus uh, and I think David as well is like on like doing a good job and thinking like, okay, what's next? Like feeling into as best we can, like feeling into the zeitgeist, trying to think of where does the conversation want to go? What, what things combine together that we haven't yet seen? Um, and then just the day to day of, of what we're doing, you know, because we have you know, some online courses now, three now, and then we have our kind of digital campfire. So it's just like, it's busy. <laughs> this is really busy yeah. and so it's like it's kind of a constant um uh a busyness as well um and i think one of the challenges for me is is anyway in life but especially now is, is taking time to slow down and reflect and take a break um because i have a tendency not to do that and then the creativity gets more stifled and things get a little bit sludgy so yeah mm, can relate maybe let's share a deep breath of center and groundedness right now huh yeah, it's easy to get caught up in it all. Um, let's talk about the digital campfire a bit, the community side of things. So I am really fascinated by how these sense-making communities, you guys at Rebel Wisdom, the STOA, uh, what Jenny is doing with Dent, um, are forming community cohesion around sense-making coordinates. I think that's a really potent combination right there. And I've been thinking a bit around like, you know, what is it? What what binds a community together? And uh, I want to write about it, actually. What was it? I came up with four different things. It's kind of like you can have a, a, a charismatic persona. You can have a philosophy. You can have a certain practice. Um, and there's a fourth, which I forget for now. Um, but I think sense-making as a bind is about as good as it gets, really, because it suggests being able to take different perspectives. It suggests a kind of openness, and there's usually enough overlap and in interests outside of that kind of political systems view to also create really meaningful bonds. And so what I'm interested in is, for me, that, the, like, this is my hammer. I see community as, like, 
the be all and end all. It's my perspective. I think it's the nexus where we can bring uh, systems change, personal change, and put into action all the things we're talking about. So I wonder if you feel that a bit as well. Like, you know, you're talking about all these amazing ideas, but what are we going to do with it after a while? You know, like presenting them is important, but how we, I get the sense that you and David are also like, all right, how do we live this as well as talk about it? And is that kind of how you're framing the digital campfire wisdom community that you're creating? Yeah. Uh, all really interesting questions. And I'm probably, if you don't mind, going to flip some questions to you to get some of your mm-hmm. wisdom because mm-hmm. I, because the whole thing, like we, like we're, we, we have been sort of reluctant community builders, which I know from, from talking to like Sarah Ness, um, you know, she, she's reflected that a lot of uh, Sarah Ness. Of people, do you know Sarah Ness? Uh, she does authentic revolution. Uh, uh-huh. She does brilliant kind of authentic relating facilitator and we've worked with her okay. a lot. Um, but yeah, she, she, we had a conversation with her one time and she mentioned that a lot of people who are um, kind of holding community feel like they're sort of reluctant community holders or community builders. It kind of happened and that that's similar to our space. But we really, yeah, I mean, we've been on a journey with it over the last year where we've always had a kind of a membership model. Um, but we created the, the digital campfire uh, specifically to have a kind of a central place for everyone to gather. Yeah. And to make a really kind of make a community of practice, and R- Rich Bartlett and Natty Lombardo, I know you know Rich. Uh, yeah, they've both been from, on the podcast already. Yeah, and so they helped us enormously um, with using the kind of micro solidarity model. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, like it's strange having a paid model and having different tiered memberships and having the micro solidarity model, which is something that we kind of like. You know, this is. I'm I'm wondering about that. It's like, how do those things go together? You know, the paid model, the tiered thing, which makes sense in so many of these contexts. But when you mix it with deeper communitas cultivation, it can is it they are they funny bedfellows? Is it working? What are you finding? Yeah, I mean, well, well, yes, they are funny bedfellows. Is would be the short answer to it. And and we changed up the tier system quite significantly to make it simplified um, after a while, because you have you know you can have a situation where it's like, oh, there's um, an event happening for people at the $25 tier, but they're mates with people in the $10 tier and they're all chatting with each other in the thing. And it's like, Oh, but can they come to, it's a, it's a, it's a really, <laughs> really tense, it's not ideal. Um, and so we really kind of wrestled with that a lot. Um, but what we realized, and this is just, this is kind of unique to us, I think, is that we, we don't want to, or actually we can't really hold a community of practice because, we so we had a lot of um practice sessions right we had a lot of authentic relating emergent dialogue uh movement i mean everything under the sun and it was kind of its own kind of beautiful like it was great and people were getting into really deep spaces but then we realized like this isn't actually sustainable because we can't have like hundreds of people doing different sessions and be able to maintain a sense of sort of like safety containment and responsibility like we can't contain Mm. like you know we're used to holding workshops where you really create the container and build a certain field and then Mm. we're responsible for that container and then people play in that container and and develop and learn and and whatever it might be Mm. but we realized we were kind of trying to hold a gigantic container that we we couldn't really hold so what we decided to do is switch it up. And we actually don't refer to it as, as community anymore. We call it the digital campfire. Because mm. if you actually, it's a good metaphor. If you imagine like a, a campfire that was where people were gathering, 
what happened is that we we started to I think not move forward uh, in the sense that practice for the sake of practice is not something we're too keen on. I kept having the the question, what are we practicing for? If this is a community mm. of practice, what are we practicing for? Mm. We should probably build something. It's also challenging because we're all over the world and it's a digital community. And um, well, what do you build? And I just don't, I don't know what you build. Um, I even suggested at one point, let's just build a bench. <laughs> let's just build something. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but so that, that urge became very strong. The other thing is that it was um, what we were finding is that by having just a community that was kind of all gathered in one spot, people were starting to sort of live there rather than use it as something that they wanted to bring into their lives or spread. Mm. And that's the intention. So we switched it about, I think, about two months ago so that the online, so that the asynchronous chat-based platform we had, Circle, which is a bit like Mighty Networks, mm-hmm. we spun that off to members of the community um, so that they could, um, it was almost like the idea is like uh, taking an ember of the fire and building your own fire, mm. um, which they've done magnificently. Uh, and so they've, they've done that and the, the asynchronous part of the community is now community run. Um, mm. And we're focusing on creating content, bringing people, speakers, and experiences around the digital campfire that people come feel inspired by, and then encouraging them to to meet, find the others, and build something. Um, which we're not, because there, there's a whole thing of like with a paid community. There's just also this kind of tension of if someone decides to do like a session within the community are we ultimately responsible for that Mm. because it's happening within our like effectively like if we were running a club and then it's tricky it's a hard one it's really tough and so we were like kind of we are kind of we feel a responsibility for that and also we have a quality control thing where we can't just let anyone do so if someone's like yeah i want to run psychotherapy sessions for for other members like well you are you a psychotherapist <laughs> like <laughs> no nobody asked that but you know that's the kind of thing so sure. so we so and the other thing is that we want to focus and are focused on delivering what we're we're best at in that realm which is courses so contained experiences that have a limited time on them and uh, this is something that rich rich and natty talk about like even time capping a crew of people who meet together for certain thing within like six yeah. weeks and then revising it that's really important as well and we really noticed the, the wisdom in that when you know after because after something's been running for a long time it starts to become something else you know and, and you get like little mini tribes within your community yes. um, which is cool but uh it, it it becomes unsustainable at least for us became unsustainable in that format and it takes a lot of energy to manage. I mean, you guys have got full-time stuff going on just on the content production side of Rebel Wisdom. I know you're also doing other things in the psychedelic world. So this is what I found when you stumble into this rich, fertile, neo-tribal context, which feels really good in some ways, but it's it's more than a full-time job. It's, it's 12 full-time jobs. You can become therapist, mother, father, and also the cult thing happens a bit as well of like the way that humans organize is that we tend to move towards our charismatic leaders and we put them on pedestals and that creates all sorts of dynamics, which is almost another full-time job to deconstruct by itself, let alone everything going on. So I've been, I can imagine for you guys, it's all been happening quickly and it's like, wow, how do we innovate as it goes? Because 
you've also got something that's really meaningful to people. I was kind of pushing Peter Lindbergh from the store, who's become a friend around this, because I'm like, man, you know, like that collective is waiting to happen there. But he's also been like, no, let's, the store is its thing. You come and do that, then you leave. But um, I think this wants to happen, the people around it. And I think the way that you're playing it. So is it is it not going to be under a Rebel Wisdom name or is it just going to be like now you found each other, convene and pod or, or how, are you, how are you doing that at the moment? Yeah, it, it, so a few different ways. So kind of the second thing of now that you found each other, um, and we're still we're still kind of in the transition space of of making that uh, easier mm-hmm. and clearer for people. But yeah, convene, you know, meet around something, do do a crew, but it's not going to it's not going to be under Rub Wisdom banner. Uh, and if you want to go and find the others and, and chat asynchronously, there's the emerge what what's currently called the Emergent Commons, which is the community run um, platform that used to be our uh, the Rebel Wisdom one and is now being run by them. So we encourage people to go there and. Um, and play, and I'm really curious to see what emerges from there because my hope is yeah. that like something totally new and different emerges, and it becomes its wow. own thing. So, but I would love to ask. I'm, I'm curious to hear from you, right? For, sure. Uh, just in, in terms of the, um, in, so so you just mentioned like you know this thing wants to emerge that people are looking for. You know, we're all looking for this kind of sense of like connecting with the others and engaging in a kind of form of community like this. I think it's absolutely <laughs> true. But you have, you know, you have more experience with community than than we do by far. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on how that might be done, avoiding the pitfalls, and and kind of in an online way? Sure, uh, <laughs> good question. Um, the community that I cultivated got very potent and quite. I would say it's like a. I've got a system of classification where I call things a community, then a collective then a neo-tribe, and I wrote a little article with the distinctions of those things, and I would suggest that we got to proto-collective phase, um, and then we exploded fantastically in a civil war of Marvel proportions about a year ago uh, on the back of the uh, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, COVID. Um, we saw the bifurcation that we talked about in the progressive left happen on a small and intense scale and it tore the thing apart um so yeah quite an intense full-on uh story taught, uh, i learned a lot and i've since been in the more online meta community building space over the last year and a half so i'm kind of addressing the question you're getting at i think it's possible i was listening to aaron uh who and Alyssa, who did the, the shadow work session recently with you and uh for me, it all comes back down to shadow work really at this point of like, how can we find the others so that we can create safe containers so that we can do that work together so that we can create uh, stable systems that we even microcultures so that we can start to enact political change within it. And then from that, do bigger waves of political change and join up. That's like my broader system of change idea. Uh, but oh, this this question of can you do shadow work online in the sense making space is so delicious. Aaron and Alyssa arrive at the like it's really risky and we shouldn't go there. I have done it successfully and think it's possible. And I see a vision for how and really I'm starting to arrive at the feeling that that could be my work over the next few years of 
creating like a massive pool that could be fed into from all these different sense-making scenes from around the world. And within that, you find the other people. There's a certain level of training that you can all get that can be courses of how you do it. And then you very much let it be its own thing, not under the brand or auspices of each of the each of the nodes. I think that's how the real shift is gonna is gonna happen. And it's also one of the most difficult things that I've done. All of the, I call them pods, crews, all of them that I've run, all six versions of them over the last five or six years have been fraught with tension and difficulty. And yeah, you have to plan for nuclear fallout. So that doesn't go very well with a brand. So you kind of need to like have that be its own thing. And I think it's possible online, but I think it's very delicate and I think it needs to be done in a very particular way. But I I get a humming excitement of the kind of collective that can form and looks like it is forming organically around Rebel Wisdom. And I think that may end up being some of the most enduring legacy of what you're up to is, is the in-person and online relations that happen as a result around what's going on. So... I, I wish the time zones were better because it just doesn't line up for me so well. But um, I'd be keen to play some more in the community, and it's you know it's something I, I could definitely delve into some more. Yeah, thanks, man. That's a, that's really uh, I, I really feel the energy in what you're sharing, and it makes me feel excited. And I and I, I that would be such a beautiful thing to come out. Is that kind of and that's kind of the hope. Our hope has always been to spark a um, a new culture, you know, and just uh, and help do that. I think we're the only ones doing it, but. Um, the, um, and, and just yet, yeah, we have added a, a community a Australian um, call actually. So I'll, I'll send you details of that um, ah, because, because we felt really bad then for the times. And it's re- it's run by two really cool people, um, uh, Adriana and Paul, and uh, who are in Australia. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean they're 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 doing a great job. So that's the kind of you know really nice crew. But the you know, as you were talking, what was, um, yeah, the, it's interesting, like the shadow work and the ongoing shadow work feels essential. And mm-hmm. then there's other elements that I'm, I'm curious about how they work out online of shared purpose. Um, mm-hmm. And also there is something of identity in any community that seems to inevitably form that, you know, and, and I think it's, it's a dangerous thing, but also it needs a little bit of it. Like, if I think about, so I live on a, a, a houseboat in, in London and there's like 50 or so other boats here. And mm-hmm. this part of the canal is, um, so, so firstly, like it's, it, it's, a, it's a community, but it's not a sort of like intentional community in the sense of like people have come to make community. And yeah. interestingly, if I compare my, what I've observed from intentional community to this, th- this is kind of like more smooth. Because there's yeah. more kind of like people in their individual zones, but people yes. work together because boats, shit goes wrong with boats all the time. They get stuck. Someone needs to help you tow it back or they just, they fuck up. One time one was sinking. Um, and so we are kind of bailing it, you know, everyone cool. bands together to help mm-hmm. because there's a natural, well, the desire to do that on a human level, but also because everyone helps each other out. And so it becomes a kind of reciprocal vibe. It's a reciprocal culture that's just naturally built into the, the nature of the living. But yes. what, what's interesting is that, so this section of the towpath is, um, it's very nice here. People have built really nice gardens and it used to be a kind of touristy walk. So mm-hmm. you'd have from dusk till dawn, the gates were open and people could walk from the, down the stretch. It's probably about, um, I'd say it's probably about 800 meters or so long. Mm. 
and so you'd have tourists walking up and down during the day and i've like we've never lived here when that's been the case because the gates have been locked because of like um something up with the towpath so it looks like they're going to open them up again probably in a couple of months i would guess and it'll be our first time having that experience and i was talking to people about when they first closed and everyone was thrilled about it because they were like great it's just going to be our kind of it's basically it becomes like a gated community and there was one guy on the whatsapp thread at that time who was like no 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 i think basically we're, we're we're kind of creating a rod for our own backs because right now we have a kind of collective us and them healthy us and them of us and the tourists you know there's mm. us as a community and we're kind of banded together and then there's people from outside the community coming in and through and he's like that creates a different vibe and at the time everyone sort of like shut him down i was like ah you're mad you're mad um but in a sense he was right in that uh, from what i understood it's, it's not so bad now but like different um issues started forming around like well that's my section of the towpath uh, whose mm. garden is that who gets to use this bit? Is this communal or is this not communal? And like, you know, so you start when, as soon as you close the community, and I kind of noticed this with ours a little bit, you uh-huh. start creating a different kind of tribalism within it. Mm. And when it's opened up, you have a kind of, and so, you know, us and them dynamics kind of get a bad rap, but there is a kind of inevitable, maybe it's about holding it lightly or being fluid with it. But there, I think there does need to be some sense of like, we as this community represent this and, it's Taoism. It's like we are this and we are not this, and I think there's often a reluctance to go there with the inclusivity kind of um, mindset. And so, but equally, if you too much us and them, then you become a cult. And so, like, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Like, where where is the yeah, what does a healthy balancing point look like between those two things? Yeah, and balancing is the right metaphor. It reminds me of the slide you had in your psychedelic sense making thing. Of it, it's it's the same idea of trying to set up what we're pointing towards this deeper sense-making collective community context is so fraught with peril and the reason we we've run away from it as a society we've run into our hyper individualized lives for a reason because it, it makes sense and there's kind of like a almost a sense of healing that can happen there but then you know you reach a pendulum swing and we're seeing it's time to kind of reconnect and find that collective energy again and it's difficult and it's probably going to explode and fail at least four or five times before you arrive at any semblance of uh, stability. But I think it's the work of our times because I think if we don't do it, we're seeing we're all on slightly different tra- trajectories and where that where that ends up. But you need to be a ninja. And this is the next book I'm writing, Becoming Community Creatures, which are all the initiations I think we need to have before we're even halfway ready to walk that tightrope. Because the, the biggest one you pointed to is how do you have in-group identity and camaraderie without automatically slipping into othering the rest of the world. And that's just such a huge pitfall that just there's so many cognitive biases like that that kick in that we really need to work. But when you get it right, and I've had little tastes of it, and it sounds like you have as well, Mike, there's nothing like it. It's just like it. It's I feel it's innate. It's like neo tribalism. This idea of we evolved within it for two million years, and then 
what about when you start to put ritual and initiation into it, which I know you're all about. And it's when you combine that with the psychedelics in the right context with just the right amount of leadership. And this is what excites me about Rebel Wisdom. You've already done the hard work with how we position ourselves in terms of the ideas. We've already modeled, hmm, that's our stance. So you can already just bring that into a communal setting. You don't kind of need to recreate that. Wow. Like what will happen inside of that, as I'm sure it has already, people will start to pop off and evolve and others will see the breakthroughs that happen. And you create this kind of feedback loop of I've been through that process and I can hold space for others. And then I get shivers when we start to connect that with nature and the land. I just talked to Tyson Yunker Porter and that, that element of indigenous wisdom coming in of how we, you know, reframe with our ecology. You bring in, yeah, what about ritual and initiation? I mean, have you started to, You've been doing the men's the men's work, but where does that fit in so far to the, the context of the, of yeah, the digital campfire? I, also, just to say, becoming community creatures is a great title. I love I love that. Uh, as Peter Peter Lindbergh would say, it's great coinage. Community creatures, awesome. right? It's really yeah, nice. I got a bit of game a marketing in me as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, and definitely resonate with everything you're saying as well. I mean, the yeah ritual. I mean, what I've noticed. Uh, in our men's weekends is that there's actually quite a lot of ritual in it um, and it's very important and the thing with ritual that i found um is that you have to go full in like you have to like understand that ritual is like as successful as the intent and earnest like earnestness is not maybe not the right word but like the intent and honesty with which you carry it out it's mm. like you know so if you're like okay guys we're going to do a ritual around the fire now and uh you know it's it's, it's, it's no big deal it's like it doesn't it doesn't land it's no longer a ritual mm. it's got to be like this isn't the fire this is yeah. regeneration then it's like mm-hmm. then it's and, and like there, there's something about humility in ritual because you're fault fo- you're you're following a well you're doing something almost for the gods right like that's mm. like you're doing something to connect to something higher than yourself even if you're not explicitly saying that and i think that is also the absolute key thing which our culture has lost is um is it, it, what are we doing it for right like what's the higher connected purpose whether that's that's nature whether it's god whether it's um it's got to be something higher than our our individual and collective egos um and and so and that i think grounds the whole thing which is why for example or probably one of the reasons that the 12 steps program is so tremendously successful as like a decentralized um, a c- kind of form of community because it's, yeah. it's based around, it starts from the point of shadow and it starts from the point of humility. Mm-hmm. And it also, the anonymity thing is actually something they added in, I think in like the 1940s where they were like, mm-hmm. oh, it won't work if, if people can use this as their own ego pedestal. So everyone's anonymous. Mm-hmm. Like they've really cracked a lot of stuff. And what, what I find fascinating is that they don't shout obviously, because that's part of the thing, but they're in pretty much every city in the world, if not most towns, they're yeah. completely like, and it's not just for, you know, alcohol, it's for, you know, 12 steps is applied to lots of different things. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any scandals that, that have rocked other kind of like spiritual communities. Like there was no mm. too stuff. There was no abuse yeah. stuff that came out. I'm sure something's happened somewhere, but like, that's quite a thing. Like that's definitely quite a thing. It's quite an impressive model. So I think it's like, a and they really connect good you to, to the divine as well. So yeah. it's not like it's they're beating around the bush. you know. Yeah. Straight up. That's it's, it's surrender to God. And I think mm. with that is one of the reasons um, I, I haven't actually gone through a 12 step process, but I, quite a few people in my life have, and I've really witnessed how transformative it can be as well. 
um, that I think is like a fascinating thing that I, that I'm curious to know more yeah. about um, as a model. But one of those, yeah. So one of the elements is um, what, a kind of surrender to something higher. And we used to have like an army had that when in the in the days of nationalism, where it's like, what are we fighting for? Well, for for king and country. Mm. Um, and then of course, like we we went through a process of being like, well, that was kind of bollocks. Um, <laughs> so rightly so. But there's, there's what wasn't bollocks is, is doing something for something higher than yourself. Yeah. Um, and so how do we, how we build that in is a really um, interesting one. Um, and I think it can be built I, in without, yeah. I'm curious to hear, hear your thoughts on that though. I just had a, an inspiration around like, you know, what are we fighting for, right? What are we striving for? And that's what, that's what Trump's given people, isn't it? Make America great again. I mean, that, that, that whole idea. And we all need that to some degree. And it just struck me. It's like, it could be a bit frustrating when we're taking on all the perspectives and sense-making and galaxy braining. It's like, wait a minute, what the fuck are we, what are we fighting for? Like, there's something that we feel here. And it, I feel like we're fighting for each other. That that's, I want to rediscover one another and hold each other fiercely so that we can fall apart and this is a really key part for me in the community space and why sense-making spaces online are hard because you need to have a container where people can fuck up royally, where all of themselves come, can come out. And that needs to be held in a container. And that's not possible to do for a few hundred people, random facilitators along the way. So I think it's really wise that you guys have, have chilled on you know, going full steam ahead with that side of things. But... Maybe there's, for me, there's some sort of hybrid thing going on where you have your neural network, sense-making brain online community and the software is getting better and more interesting around that. And that dovetails with your local in-person collective, you know, embodiment training sort of practice and getting these two things synced up. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really like that a lot because like kind of doing it, doing it for each other feels like a really important element. And interestingly that's actually what soldiers report, <laughs> you know, under, under fire, under pressure, the real motivation isn't some abstract sense of like, Oh, I'm doing this yes. for, for the country. It's that I'm doing it for, um, the, the, you know, the, the my brothers around me. And like that, that, that seems to be a very consistent thing that people report. Um, yeah. and there's maybe it's, it's like a kind of finding the transcendent in the in the immediate right like the through mm. the connection bet- through the connections between us we find the kind of the, the deeper connection uh to to something beyond us you know that's another yeah. potentially w- way that it might that it might be fruitful to explore but i think that's really yeah i think i, I totally beautiful what you're saying. to we're living i look at things as though we're in a traumatized age and uh I mean, my perspective is that we have been ever since civilization started, Um, but it's definitely, we're seeing it more and it's coming to the surface more at the moment. And I feel this commitment, I'm on my own inner work of really looking and really looking behind and looking again. And we mentioned the Enneagram before we started uh, the call. I'm seeing this core codependent, giving, pleasing others, I shouldn't exist, which is the two archetype. It's just this pathological loneliness at the core of it that I've been doing 17 years of personal development work full on because I've had chronic fatigue syndrome. So I've, I've like been trying to uncover the source. And I realize I'm just at the very 
beginning always. The path is just this like step and to get into sync with others and do that together next to each other as it's a really warrior spirit. It's really like, Hey, we're holding the line that that's yeah. I get shivers from that. And that's what uh, I feel is starting to emerge. And we're starting to cohere around these ideas because we started to do that in our community in, in Thailand, but it was too broad. We had conspiracy theorists. We had super lefties, activists. We even had some conservatives in there. And when the shit got real, they were some pretty big fault lines. And I think that's why starting out with a sense-making uh, you know, core is really helpful because the shit's going to get real. And you're going to have less fuel for combustion in those moments that you can at least, you know, you kind of, you can't escape through those easy arguments you can have with someone. It's like, nah, we're actually dealing with your shadow and my shadow here right now. This has got nothing to do with the broader political system. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I, the, I'm curious, like, and I'm sure that was really explosive and then all broke apart. Um, mm-hmm. As seems to be the case with lots of community, and that seems to be the way it goes more often than not. Um, and I wonder yep. if there's something around, you know, I had a, a LSD trip recently and, and really tapped into, like, what Eckhart Tolle calls the pain body. It's mm-hmm. kind of sort of, this is the body of your emotional pain. And uh, I'm obviously not like none of us are a stranger to emotional pain, but I conceptualized mm. it as a kind of body of pain for the mm. first time in that way and was like, oh my God, there's so much of it <laughs> just as a human being. And the, what, what struck me is like the, what makes people nice to each other, this is a massive overgeneralization, but one thing that makes people nice to each other and genuinely compassionate is being tapped into their own pain um, and mm. this sense of like understanding that other people are also in pain. And there's a, I'm reading right now, um, Robert Masters' uh, spiritual bypassing. He's a guy who came, mm. I don't think he came up with the term, but he sort of popularized it. And so much of it is it, like the reason we bypass is just to avoid pain, very simply, right? And that's why, why we bypass into spirituality. Um, so it's been kind of fresh in my mind. And it's like the like cutting to where is the pain, like Gabor Mate talks about as well. He's like, not, mm. not why the addiction, the addiction, but why the pain? That seems to be a very important aspect of it because that cuts right through the kind of how that pain is manifesting in a political belief or how that pain is manifesting in a kind of strident need for things to be a certain way. Um, that, you know, and, and having a container that can hold, like you were saying before, like people going through fuck-ups, people really being in their pain, well, that's, quite a, um, that's quite a thing. I think it's possible. It's just like quite a kind of... Um, As we... Uh, I, I, yeah. As we're getting, as what I'm feeling is like, it's absolutely so important that we do get there at some point, but from what I've learned, we need to have the right conditions to do it and it's not worth rushing and it's worse to get started in a context where we're all too busy with too many jobs and too many things going on and too many pressures because people get out of sync really quickly then and more damage can be done is what I'm learning. So I'm kind of arriving at this place of like, we really want it spelled out. We really want it, the right container. We want the right commitment. But the, the, the kicker is it takes so much time and energy. I don't have a full-time job. So I've got all this luxurious time to play with. But I see others that I've been doing this potting process with here in Melbourne. They just don't have the time of day. They, they rock up, you know, they've, they've been seeing their family, they've been working. And I don't know, this is a really sticky problem, Ali, because it's like, 
this work is essential or else we just keep speeding up and, and get heading towards these multipolar traps. So we somehow need to slow down again and sit with the pain. We need to find each other because doing it by ourselves is too much and paying therapists to do it. Yeah, useful. But for me, this has got to transcend that. And this needs to be that kind of like group process. And yeah, it's a big thing. It's just, it's nice to sit in it with someone. It's nice to just see it and feel it because the more we kind of put it out there, it will start to, it will start to build momentum, I feel. Yeah, definitely, man. And yeah, yeah. I mean, as you're talking, I'm also sitting with the, the noticing the desire in myself always to find a solution and just, just how <laughs> uncomfortable it is to sit like like what you've just laid out and what, what I've experienced over the last year or so as we've been um, kind of experimenting in community is that it is just so difficult and I don't have the answer and none of us have the answer. We're co-creating it as we go. And it's like, it's uncomfortable because I really, there's a part of me that really just wants to find a button that's like, oh, that was it. <laughs> It was just missing this and then press it. Yes. And then, of course, that's not the, um, I think it's not the nature of it. It's, it's similar with what's happening in the psychedelic space. Like um, this, this desire to do it as like, you know, com- I just have this debate with uh, the president of Compass Pathways, the sort of I saw. The, the, the big, yeah, it was, it was quite a trip in and of itself. But the, well the, done. the big pharma company. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It was, um, yeah, I was very nervous. I was more nervous for that than anything I've done before, I think. Um, mm. But part well, of You had a lot was, weighing on that. That's a really yeah. important, like for me, that's an archetypal meeting of different ideas. And he didn't comment on the film that you made. So there was kind of already that like what disconnect yeah. going on a little bit. And then t- talk, talk to me a little bit more about it. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, I mean, so, so basically Compass Pathways, if anyone is not familiar with them, is a um, psychedelic, uh, is, is a company, a kind of pharma company, basically. They were one of the first to be looking at psilocybin for depression. They're very controversial, uh, have been for a few years. They've, they've been accused of all sorts of like kind of trying to shut down other research, trying to make academics sign really like strict policies where they're, they're in control of the data. Um, uh, they went very controversially. Controversially, they were a non-profit, and then they, they engaged lots of researchers and clinicians around that, mm. got lots of insight from them, and then they switched to being a for-profit without talking to any of them. So they, they got, mm. that was one of the first things. And then more recently, they've, they've been um, kind of uh, lot, courting a lot of controversy for um, filing what people see as really broad patents for, uh, for psilocybin, not just for depression, but for other areas. And so, I mean, it gets complex because you can't patent psilocybin, um, but you can patent, well, arguably you can patent a polymorph, which is like a temporary, like if I make psilocybin in a certain way, it'll have like almost like a snowflake crystal structure just at room temperature. And then once I take it, it's just psilocybin again. So they Mm. managed to patent, uh, with a lot of pushback, they managed to get through the patent for that. So anyway, it, there, there's a lot of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of controversy. How, how, how much time have you got left before your next? I, I can thing? do a little bit longer. Yeah, I can do a little. Because I wanted to touch on the psychedelic capitalism yeah. with you a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah, let's I, see. I can go. I can go over a bit. It's fine. Yeah. Okay, I want to frame it a little bit before we delve into yeah. that. So, um, the yeah, you're deep in it. Uh, anyone that hasn't seen the Rebel Wisdom psychedelic capitalism film. Do it. It's great. It's fantastic. Well done. It's a wonderful piece of journalism. I so enjoyed it. Um, this is a big passion of yours. I, I heard along the way that you've got uh, you've you've trained as a sitter at King's College. Uh, you've mentioned that your partner's involved in this, so you're living and breathing this stuff. And um, 
gosh, there's so many aspects I want to delve into it with you. I, I, I only learned recently that they're synthesizing psilocybin. I didn't know that. I mean, that's a whole discussion in and of itself of like, whoa, what, what difference does that make? And that, that brings up some really interesting, it's an interesting territory, isn't it? Of like, well, how do I feel about that? The hippie in me is like, no way. But then the practical person in me is like, well, all right. Yeah, that can work. You know, these synthetic compounds seem to be, maybe I probably couldn't tell the difference. So, I mean, that's a whole whole thing in and of itself. But broadly, I guess, where are you at with it right now? I mean, you're literally, how are you feeling after the debate? And, and, and what's your most recent take on where the psychedelic juggernaut is moving now that it's got corporate backing behind it? Yeah, good questions um it's all okay for me you know it's like it's similar to what you were saying before this it's become wrapped into our business as usual game a dynamics of and part of that is we need to get it to patients as quickly as possible Mm. and that's compasses that was one of compasses main arguments uh, and justifications for their methods now I noticed even in the debate that actually it was my wife that pointed that out, you know, that reading mm. between the lines, she was like, you know, that's, that's something to, to pick up on. I was like, shit, that is actually, because um, that in and of itself is a strange argument because it, it's a kind of a logical fallacy. It's like an, an, an appeal to emotion because it's like people are suffering. We need to fix it as quickly as possible. But uh-huh. it's a bit like, um, it, 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 that logic doesn't actually stand if you're going to, eventually do something that's unsustainable in the long term in order to do that yeah. and it also just justifies its kind of aggressive tactics to be the first yeah um, and so it's like it's a definition of a kind of top-down approach compared to a kind of decentralized collective intelligence which other pharma psychedelic pharma companies like usona have a commitment to open science and they're not for profit so they share their data they're like hey we did this yeah. study this is what happened here's what we learned why don't you try it oh, here, you learn this. Let's all share this. And so there's these two different, there's right now in the psychedelic space, a game A and a game B. The two, like there are game A and game B models literally clashing. And this is one of the reasons wow. I think, this, aside from it being like personally very important to me, I think for this, like for the it's space we're fucking in. fucking fascinating. Yeah, like people should be watching it because it's yeah. exactly what we talk about, but it's actually mm. really happening. And, and very often it comes down to the humans who are making the decisions of should we go with this person for our psilocybin should we go with this person should i take this speaking gig and get paid for it or should i not if i'm supporting this conference which is a bit sketchy and it's it that's one of one thing i've noticed is it really comes down to individual integrity of Mm. the people involved but Uh it also is is affected greatly by the systems because the reason for example you have to synthesize psilocybin is that you can you have to give people the same amount in a clinical trial you have to know it's exactly the same Mm -hmm. amount and you also have to have a way of scaling it um and uh and and having reliable quality control testing and stuff yeah 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 so so um sorry bear with me there's a there's a tugboat pushing a barge uh so i'm sorry but it gets a little bit noisy uh sitting on the roof of the boat it's not the tourists Um, they're not hoarding on you are they no 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 not yet (laughs) so yeah so you have all these dynamics at play and you have the of course, game A has more money. And if you want to play the game A thing, you get funded by venture capitalists and they want to know it's profitable. And that immediately creates uh, perverse incentives. 
Because they've it, got it, big money compass, it, right? They've got yeah, hundreds yeah. of millions raised. Peter Thiel's backing them. Like it's a full yeah. on yeah, yeah, yeah. first mover advantage. Let's burn the ground behind us with patents, like full on corporate yeah. strategy, right? Yeah. Which And this isn't like, we're not talking mindfulness here or yoga. This is like the sacred element of fucking yeah. psychedelic medicine. You know, that's a slightly different, it's a different beast. And I, it's, absolutely. I can't, I can't make scale. sense of it. I can't I can't even make sense of people sitting in a university lab like actually visualizing them being given psychedelics let alone corporate like I've I've kind of been sleeping on it a little bit and I'm just catching up and it's like these players where did they come out of the woodwork so quickly like all these slightly slick corporate types that are like yeah it's investing in a pharmaceutical company and it's like <laughs> what like how does that happen it's just bam yeah, man, it's it has been so quick as well, and then some of them yeah. are coming from the cannabis industry, which was the last kind of rapacious, predatory uh-huh. thing to invest in, where a bunch right. of people lost money because there was a bubble. I think we're in a psychedelic bubble right now. I don't think mm. possibly these these companies are worth as much as as um, they're claimed to be. I've read a lot of investment kind of things uh, saying the same because pretty you know, hypey, I mean, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's quite hypey, and and the other thing yeah. is that they're not like a normal pharmaceutical drug. So, you know, normally with a pharma company, you have a kind of like, say you made Valium, uh, you made like, or like diazepam, like you, you had 10 years where only you could make it and you made all the money out of that to recoup the amount of money you spent developing it. If you're, if you're developing a, a, you know, something like psilocybin or LSD for a condition, so pre-existing drug for a condition that's already been looked at, like people have been testing uh, you know, alcoholism, depression, anxiety with, with these substances for like 30, 40 years, it's not the same. So it's a weird, it's a weird kind of, um, kind of, uh, you might see it as an opportunistic uh, approach. Um, and so, and then at the same time, you have these very game B approaches. And so you have, for example, in Oregon, measure 109, mm-hmm. which was voted in at the same time as um, uh, the last US presidential election, so quite recent, that legalizes <clears throat> psilocybin therapy in the state and it means that you can use mushrooms, and it goes through the state healthcare. And there's a guy, so it was a couple, Tom and Sherry Eckhart, and uh, they mm-hmm. brought it from the ground up from nothing, two therapists, it took them five, six years, and then they just got it passed. And tragically, Sherry passed away sh- like shortly after that. So they have this kind of very mm. beautiful um, story of, of them really, this was like their baby, is how Tom describes it. And now yeah. they're in a, a space in Oregon where they got it passed. It's legal now. And they have they created very wisely a two-year period before it gets rolled out. You can go to a clinic there in which mm-hmm. they're going to figure out, well, how do you do it? And like one of the mm-hmm. ways they're doing it is that you don't have to be previously credentialed, i.e. you don't have to be a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist necessarily to do the training to do it. So you could be a space holder in a different way. And I think they're still figuring wow. out. Um, so, you know, and interestingly, the head of Compass was accused, and it's difficult to verify this, but he was accused um, of trying to interfere in that by calling Oregon ah. psychologists and, psych- and, and trying to say, oh, well, you know, it's not a good idea, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so that, that, that kind of accusation is in the field. And I, I asked Lars, the, the president of Compass in the debate, like, don't you see that model as a threat? Because if, if 10 other states and then a bunch of countries roll that out, then it does actually change the, the nature of the game, in my view. He said, he said, no, it's just a different model. It's not a threat. But in a game A d- dynamics, 
every different model is a threat. It's a threat. <laughs> every different model war. is a threat. It's yeah, it's war. It's it's a war footing, and so it's like, um, so yeah. How I feel after it, I feel um, privileged and satisfied that I ended up being the person to have that debate. I felt a lot of pressure from. Um, Are you ready for that community. pressure? Are you ready to be the uh, hero of the game B psychedelics oh God, society? Not at all. Uh, not at all, because also it came about very quickly, I, and I only had a week to prepare, and it was just a bit of a. Um, I'm still kind of landing from it and trying to figure out, like you know, that I feel a little bit of frustration because there's a lot of other areas that I would have liked to push on further, but in the in the format we had, and it, it's difficult to do. It's difficult to like, and also it's it's kind of past my comfort zone to push as hard as I pushed in that even to kind of like really yeah. ask for an answer to the question. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that aspect of it, but um, I feel like it was just the beginning. <laughs> there's so much more to do. And there's people out there really doing amazing work of actually um, uh, creating kind of like a Porta Sophia, which is a resource for patent offices that they can go and look up psychedelic patents. Because part of the problem mm. is you can make a patent and patent offices like they don't have like a specific psychedelic pattern person. It's the same per it's just mm. person who does like a whole bunch of other stuff. And they're the one who has to look at what's called prior art. Like, has it happened before? Is this really new? And if mm. they're not like familiar with psychedelic research, it's just, there's a chance that they'll miss it. And so people yeah. have created, um, so there's a lot of amazing work going on out there. And I kind of want to like support that. Is this something new? Human culture was created in the crucible of these ceremonies <laughs> like fucking 200,000 years ago. Yeah, you know what I mean? I Sorry, that's not listed on our patent list here. It's like, what? <laughs> absolute. I know. Just the the kind of absurdity of the entire thing is, is, some, is it's <laughs> something I forget sometimes. I'm so in it. I'm yeah, so you like are. You're in it. You're a player in this. Yeah, yeah epic you the history you found yourself here man that's pretty cool i'm excited for you and happy that you are there because <laughs> it's going to take it's going to take all your rebel wisdom training to be able mm. to hold all of the perspectives and to be able to like find cohesion around what must be a fucking hilarious mix of characters that have been in the yes. psychedelic scene for 30 years you know and that's that's really important and for what it's worth like i see that and supporting you from afar and i'm sure lots of people are it's really oh, important thank you work. man that, that means a lot thank you yeah and i and yeah. i like it's a growth area and, and it will continue to be a it I really feels like a thing i feel like I'm, I'm kind of growing into but yeah that's really nice thank you yeah, yeah. Trying my best. As jamie said we thought we were getting woodstock and we're getting prozac nation 2.0 i thought that was a great quote such a great line isn't it jamie's he's got full such of an amazing them. way with words it's just oh, yeah, he's he does. his and his i'm reading recapture the rapture his book right now uh -huh. and it's, it's uh -huh. really good and and so easy to read because of that because of his way with yeah. language as well it's definitely uh on another level i what there's this interesting thing with it that it was a wall street banker right gordon wasson that kind of brought mushrooms to the west in a way you know he was one of the first to go and hang out with maria the lady in mexico yeah, yeah. and now yeah. spirals again here we are again wall street at the at the other end of a spiral you know the whole 60s 70s psychedelic revolution and we're back at wall street starts and ends with wall street and it's like interesting like it feels like another phase that's unfurling with that and the last question on this that i want to ask you is like what is going on with that aversion to metal and plastic that happens when we're on in the psychedelic realm like I, I hope science starts to come towards this question because it, it gets into this delicious area of like 
energy fields and what we feel, which is typically, you know, written off as just hippie nonsense by a lot of people. But there is this, there seems to be a distinct difference between the organic and the synthetic when you're in that realm. And I think you mentioned that in some talk somewhere, which is why I'm bringing it up. But yeah, what do you, have you thought about that? Have you had any insight into what that is? Like, is it psychosomatic or is there really a different energetic vibration or feeling to man-made things that are revealed to us in psychedelics? Why do we want to end up naked in a puddle in the forest? That is my question to you. It's not an easy one, but I wonder what you've got to say. <laughs> oh, love that. Uh yeah, why? I don't know. I mean, the thing is, so my, my guess is there, there's probably a lot of association with synthetic, inert objects that have been made because someone made those objects, right? So whether it's about the material, because the material is also arguably natural, you know? Like George uh -huh. Carlin said, maybe nature just wants the whole planet to be covered with plastic and all of us to die. <laughs> That's why it gets yes. us to get the oil. So, so in that sense, like... I don't know, but there is a uh, there is a kind of fractal perfection in nature that you can observe on psychedelics that is reconnecting and and grounding, and I think that it's 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 missing from like a Tupperware container, right? And yeah. the um, you know the Gnostics had a um, a kind of very sophisticated psycho spiritual view whereby there's a kind of cosmic creativity and connectedness at the heart of things. And that's where true creativity comes from, true novelty. Mm. And our egos, when they're disconnected from the self, can only mimic that. So they create a kind of like a, a paltry mimicry of mm. it. And so, you know, like a, you, you could see like a skyscraper is like, a, you know, city full of skyscrapers is like a kind of strange mimicry of the forest, right? It's cold and dead mm. and it doesn't actually have the life in it. Um, and the kind of the hierarchies of like, the king and the tax collector are also a, a kind of mimicry of the hierarchy of like an ecosystem, but they're not, mm, you know, they're, they're kind of corrupt. Simulacra. Wow. So, yes, it's similar. It's similar. And so in that sense, I wonder if there's a sense of being able to see through that with psychedelics and like walking into a supermarket on psychedelics is uh, a very strange experience because you just realize the constructed nature of it and like the fluorescent lights and the fucking weirdness of all of it. You know, and that, that's um, like experience quite a few people I've spoken to, myself included, have had. Uh, not one I'd recommend. But, um, you know, that, that there's something about the deconstructive nature of them and the sense of, well, what's real? You know, what's like and what's salient versus what's real? So I think there's, there's something going on, mm. something going on there. Um, and there's something, you know, there's something animistic about the experience. Viveki well. again. He just pops mm. up everywhere. Oh, Viveki is the dude mr yeah, I, mr yeah. viveki i was thinking of him before when you mentioned love like i want to have a discussion with him he's described it as mutually accelerating disclosure yes. and i'm like oh that's the best description of love that i've heard and it's what you were saying before of re revealing the parts that was a satisfying answer you just gave me i want to give you like 12 points for that out of 10 <laughs> that you brought in some gnosticism and it reminds me of my sweet friend uh who shall remain nameless one of the shamanic figures who initiated me into the psychedelic realm he used to drop very high amounts of lsd and i i met him in the middle of the day once i was going to university and he was dressed in full full uh regalia and uh, he was on his way and i'm like where are you headed man he's going i'm going into the casino i'm like what it's like a massive casino in the middle of Melbourne. He's like, yeah, 
going into the heart of darkness. It's time. It's time. I really made sense of what's going on in there. And I was like, "Whoa, May, I've been him. to that casino. I've been to that casino. Oh, that is know. an insane thing to do. It's it's impossible to get out because they've designed yes. it so that when you're in there, you're like, where is the exit? Where is the entrance? Do I live here now? Like, what the fuck? Yeah, wow. <laughs> you may still be in there. So let's send him. Let's send him a prayer. <laughs> Ten years oh later, a He'll be cheering you on. <laughs> Awesome, Ali. Thanks for spending this time together, man. Uh, really nice to, yeah, drop into your mind sphere and see all the different things that are going on. Um, best of luck in the in in the ongoing unfoldment of all the things that you're up to. Yeah, sending you solidarity and love and um, everything in between, my friend. Yeah, you too, Joe. Thanks, man. Thanks for all the work you're doing in, in that fucking naughty question of community. Really keen to stay in touch around that and just kind of... Um, yeah, find out how, how do we become community creatures? Because I think that's like that's yeah. a that's something we're all trying to figure out. And um, yeah, there's gold to be found, I'm sure. And I think we're, we're well on the way to finding it. So it's awesome. Yeah, really enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. Show notes are available online at www.joelightfoot.org, where you can also find more information about my book, A Collective Blooming music by Johnny Eagle. Until next time, be well my friends.